And it doesn't say public? Yeah, I made it public. That's so you're it. seeing something that you didn't see a second ago? Oh, yeah, it says we're live. Okay. Okay, well, it says it's live, so okay. It should be live. Okay, you go ahead. Lament. Uh, intro to Shepherd's Staff, each bind. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues throughout, through all generations. You establish the earth, and it endures. Your laws endure to this day. All things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have presented, preserved my life. Save me, for I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statutes. All perfection, I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. Boundless. Absolutely boundless. Okay. Exceedingly broad. Yes, exceedingly broad. There we go. All right. Uh, we got a couple prayer requests. Gil has gross on her thyroid. The doctor is concerned about one of them, so we want to pray about that. Hannah married the Muslim we mentioned last week. She met online and says she will convert to Islam. Her grandparents may never see their grandchildren again, and they are very distressed about this. Jonathan Ryu's mother died, and the family would appreciate prayers, and uh, she was in a hospice. And Sean needs prayer for continued medical issues. He's over in the UK. So we'll pray for them and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we do ask that uh, you hear our prayers for these people that were just mentioned. We know that uh, there's a lot of trouble in this world, many difficult times that people are facing. And so, Lord, we lift them up and anybody else that happens to have trials that are unnamed here. We have an online prayer group that uh, many names are brought to. We lift them up as well, Lord, and we thank you for the people that do pray that receive those emails and lord we know that you respond according to your wisdom and we ask that you would do that in the case of these people today and lord we thank you for the chance to meet in this class and to get together to hear your word and we would pray that it would be uh, properly handled that there wouldn't be anything that would be incorrect but lord we leave that in your hands knowing that if i am wrong that uh, you will hopefully send somebody to uh, send a correction so that we would have no uh, incorrect theology taught here. That would be our prayer. And Lord, uh, we just commit this uh, class to you, and we thank you for the chance to meet in it. And uh, we just love you and praise you. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's see here. I'm still just completely wiped out from traveling earlier in the week. It's one of the things that I'm not really a big fan on is traveling. But uh, had to had to go, and it was literally got off the plane, went to the hotel, and went to bed, and got up a couple hours later. And uh, eight o'clock in the morning, we went to the uh, the uh, funeral place, and left there at twelve thirty, and then we got in the car and drove, stopped at Chick Fil A, and had lunch. That was the only break we had, and then we I got taken to the airport. So it was just a couple hours on the ground, but uh, it was a nice place, and uh, I was very honored to be the one to uh to be there to do that for them sad loss for us here at the church okay uh september 9th is the day today prayer can change history no one would have expected reese howells to make a worldwide impact 
born in a village in Wales in 1879. He went to school until he was 12 and for the next 10 years worked in the local tin mill. After several of his friends went to America, Howells determined he would go too. A cousin of his had settled in Pennsylvania, so Reeves decided to join him, finding a job in a tin mill. While in Pennsylvania, Reeves went one night to a little Methodist chapel to hear a Hebrew Christian, Maurice Rubin, tell the story of his conversion. Later, he recounted that as he listened, he saw the cross. It seemed as if I had spent ages at the Savior's feet, and I wept and wept as I, I felt as if he had died just for me. Then he spoke to me and said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. May I come in to you as I came into Reuben? Will you accept me? Yes, I replied, and he came in, and that moment I changed. I was born into another world. In 1904, Howells returned to Wales, a changed man, and found work in the local coal mine. It was a time of change for Wales as well. Beginning in 1904, the fires of revival began springing up throughout Wales, and Howells spent his spare time enthusiastically participating in the revival. He married, and then, to a surprise, God called him a coal miner as a missionary to South Africa. There, God used him to spread the Welsh revival. In 1920, God brought the Howells back to Wales and called Reeves to start a Bible college. Relying on prayer and faith alone, in 1924, as a result of miracle after miracle of God's provision, Reeves Howells opened the Bible College of Wales. Not only was prayer central to the running of the school, but Howells felt it imperative to make it central in the students' lives as well. When World War II began in Europe, Howells called college-wide prayer meetings, and time after time, God answered the students' prayers for the war. On September 9, 1943, the students met for an early evening prayer meeting and then again for a second one at 9.45 p.m. As at the latter meeting, Howells announced, the Lord has burdened me between the meetings with the invasion of Salerno. I believe our men are in great difficulties, and the Lord has told me that unless we can pray through, they are in danger of losing their hold. Soon everyone was on their knees imploring God to intervene. Suddenly, at 11 p.m., they broke into spontaneous singing and rejoicing, believing that God had wrought a miracle, a miraculous intervention at Salerno, Italy. Then they all listened expectantly to the midnight news. The radio announcer said that unless some miracle happened, the Allies would be pushed back into the sea. Exactly the warning Reeves had heard from the Lord. The next day, the newspaper headline read, The Miracle of Salerno. It, excuse me, it reported that the pounding by the Nazi artillery on the first day was so heavy that it was obvious that unless a miracle occurred, the beachhead could not be established. Then suddenly, for no accountable reason, the enemy artillery ceased firing at <laughs> 11 o'clock. And a Slerno beachhead was established. Hmm. God, as the author of history ordains the means as well as the ends. At Salerno, God's end purpose was the victory of the Allies. One of the means that he used was the prayer of Reeves Howells and his students. Have you ever hesitated to pray for something because you thought you were asking for too much? God can answer a prayer. Request, uh, request for a military victory as easily as he can one for a parking space. James 4.2, the reason you don't have what you want is so you don't ask God for it. Huh, good stuff. 
All right, let's see here. We are in Ephesians chapter 5. We're starting with the first verse today. We are. Brand new chapter, and uh, Jim said, I'm, Sergio said he could he hear you very well, so. Not too well. Yeah. Yeah, he says good sound. Okay, go ahead. Okay, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Okay, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. So, a little different there. Let's see here. Therefore, the word therefore is given for us to consider what has been said, and then to apply it to what will be said. Paul spoke about learning of Christ in verse 420. That led into the appropriate walk for believers. A description of how to conduct that walk was then broken down for us in verses 25 through 32. In those verses, we are instructed how to walk properly and thus to be sound in our learning of Christ. The verses ended with, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. With that final thought, we are then told, therefore, be imitators of God. In doing the things which were described, we are imitating God. Those final words of forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you, were explained in detail. It was noted that our forgiveness is to be universally available, but not necessarily universally applied. We are not required to forgive those who do not repent of their conduct towards us, just as God does not forgive those who do not come to him through Christ. Just this week, I was watching, you know, they have mere Christianity, and whether you like C.S. Lewis or not, he was a great thinker, okay? He had a lot of good qualities. I know a lot of people like to badger him about some of the things he said and some of his odd beliefs even after becoming a Christian, but he was a great thinker, and if you want, you can watch mere Christianity on YouTube. It's broken down into little 10-minute sections, and there's probably a hundred of them. And there's a doodle guy that does yep. doodles with them. And it's excellent. very well done. Excellent. Yeah, it really is. It's very excellent. And um, the uh, uh, past week, this great thinker got it wrong. He said, we're required to forgive everybody without any, you know, uh, nothing preceding it. And I thought he got that wrong. I mean, he just got it wrong because the Bible does not teach that. Now, I will admit. In the book of Mark, I don't know if I can find it right now, probably not, but in the book of Mark, it does say when you take your, uh, your offering to the altar, and um, uh, let me see if I can find this very quickly here. I don't know if I will, but uh, it, there, while you're at the altar, forgive anybody that you have something against, and if you don't, your heavenly Father will not forgive you, okay? And I understand it says that, but then it also is qualified in Matthew. He, the exact same account, and it continues it. You can't take everything in the three synoptic Gospels without taking them as a united whole and make a doctrine out of it, okay? You need to make sure that everything that you... Um, uh, I'm not finding it here. I suppose it's right in front of me. But anyway, um, if you try to make a... Oh, here it is. Is this it? No, that's not it. Okay, it's probably a little later then. Anyway, I'll keep talking and I'll keep looking for it. But um, uh, he does say that in the book of Mark. And if you take Mark all by itself without looking at the others in the comparable accounts in Matthew and Luke, then you may come to an error in what you're thinking. So you need to do that. Uh, the Gospels are given 
in uh, you know to um, give a full description of what Christ said and some of them will pick one point some of them will pick another but together they come and they make a full picture of it so it was relayed to me once that the three synoptic gospels three people who saw the same accident that's right and, and they're describing it differently their perspective this is what I recall that's exactly and, and what then it is you add them all up you get you get the full picture. Okay, that's exactly right. And here it is. Um, Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 11:25. It says, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Well, there's more to it than that. First, take the other gospel accounts into consideration, and you'll get a full picture of it. But secondly, guess what? We are in Christ. It's... We're already forgiven. That's right. We're already forgiven. So that doesn't apply. He's obviously speaking to Israel under the law, making a point about the weight of the law upon the people. But he does elsewhere say, you know, that if they come to you and repent, etc. So you have to have, you can't just take one thing and make a doctrine out of it without taking the whole counsel of it into consideration. Um, What's his name? C.S. Lewis got that wrong. I feel bad even saying that because he was such a great thinker, but he certainly got that wrong. Okay, um, let's see, where are we right Matthew, now? Matthew 6, in the Beatitudes. Okay, Matthew 6, let me see what you're saying. 14, well, it's a, that's the uh, same thing as over in Mark. Okay, and what does it say? Let me let me go there, and uh, where are you? Matthew 6, 14? 14. Okay, does this qualify it? Um, for if you forgive men their trespasses, you're, yeah, well, okay, that's not the one, but there is another one where he repeats this, either in Matthew or Luke. Well, and, your father will forgive you, and if you don't forgive... I understand. I understand that. That's, But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm oh, saying okay. the same account where he's talking. Not that one there, but you will find it in there where he uh, qualifies it. And uh, so I'm not going to spend all day on it. But um, uh, he does do that. It's either in Matthew or Luke, and it's the same account. You bring your gift to the uh, altar or whatever. And, and, Matthew uh, 18, I think. Matthew 18. Let me go there really quick. I'm not going to spend all day on this because I didn't prepare for it, and I don't want people online to just be thinking, hey, what? what? 1835. 1835. Let me see what that one says there, and then from there, uh, hopefully that'll uh, give us the answer that we're looking for. 18 verse. There's probably somebody online that's been yelling this for the past 10 minutes. <laughs> hey, hey, let's see. Here he says, um, uh, okay, that's not the one I'm looking for either. Oh, it's it's the one where it spe- says that um, uh, Oh, well, this one here, obviously, it does say um, this is a parable about forgiveness, and it does say that the guy came and and asked forgiveness, and so, you know, that's obviously implying that you need to uh, ask forgiveness in that one. That's not the one I'm looking for either, but anyway, um, uh, it's in there. Maybe if I remember to check it this uh, uh, week, I can bring that up, but I can assure you that there is no specific instance where we are told to forgive without first having somebody come and say, I and repent, I'm sorry that about that. no sense, because you if can't. somebody is not going to change their evil ways, why would you forgive them? Yeah, because that's absolutely you're then right. forgiving the evil is basically what you're doing. You are forgiving evil. That's exactly right. So, you know, it, it's everything has to be taken in consideration. And, uh, uh, you know, I could probably do it on the iPad, but I'm not going to bother with it right no. now. Anyway, C.S. Lewis was wrong on that particular aspect but if you watch those mere christianity series and like they're only a couple minutes long when i turn off the computer and i'm waiting for he to go to just finish dinner i gotta have something on the tv because there's no computer and i'm not gonna sit there and talk to the dog 
So that's what I've been watching. And they're interesting. He comes to wonderful conclusions. You know, one of the things that I never thought of, and he said that it's so obvious if you think it through. It's so obvious, and yet you read right over it. And he even says that. He says it's so simple that you read right over it, is that um, somebody will come up and they'll say, son, your sins are forgiven, right? And he said, think about it. Think about it. If somebody is forgiving sins, listen, a sin, there's there's two types of sins, okay? I can sin against your brother. Jesus says, if you sin against your brother, okay? David says, against you, only you have I sinned, speaking to the Lord, okay? Either way, it's either the epitome of arrogance or he is God. And there's no, there's no way around that because you sin against him. You went and... We'll just say you stole $5,000 for him. And I go to you and I say, I forgive you. The arrogance that you would think of me doing that. Right. I'm talking about Burke now. Right. He would be, beside, what do you, who are you to forgive the sin that he committed against me? Right. Okay? Or the second option is even more so. If I walk up to somebody who has offended God, and I say, which obviously some of these people had, your sins are forgiven. The question of the Pharisees is correct. Who is this man to forgive sins? Right. Obviously, if he can do it, and he proved that he did by healing the person that was he forgave sins. Yeah, let, him down, yeah, let him down through the roof, and it says, what is easier, to forgive the sins or to, say, get up and pick up your mat and walk? And he said, but so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. And then he told him, pick up your mat and walk. And it proved that he is God. It's not just a, a, a mental uh, exercise anymore. It is either acknowledge that he is God or acknowledge that he is Never. The worst blasphemer, blasphemer on the planet, but there is no other option that I could think of. So he obviously worded that much better than I just did, mm -hmm. but it's something that I'd not really considered in that light is that you, you just don't go around and say, I forgive you your sins for some other person or some other being's, you know, offenses against them. So there you go. Okay, so um, uh, with that final thought, we are then told... Therefore, be imitators of God. Oh, I read that. In doing the things which were described, we are imitating God. Those final words of forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you, were explained in detail. It was noted that our forgiveness is to be universally available, but not necessarily universally applied. Now, this is one thing that I love, is when people... They, they believe their whole life that you must forgive everybody. And they go around, they tell you, you have to forgive everybody. And then they hear me and they send me an angry email and say, you don't know what you're talking about. You have to forgive everybody. When, okay, well, now show me where you got that from. And they never can, but they, they dogmatically and argumentatively will come against you on that. What's that? Yeah, they need to forgive me. That's absolutely right. You need to forgive me right now. Okay, yeah, see how silly that is? Anyway. It was noted that our forgiveness is to be universally available, but not necessarily universally applied. We are not required to forgive those who do not repent of their conduct toward us, just as God does not forgive those who do not come to him through Christ. He does not do it, okay? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, okay? That doesn't mean that we have to forgive everybody just as that, because the people that were standing there accusing Jesus 40 years later were either destroyed or were exiled. They obviously were not forgiven. 
okay? If they were, Israel would still be there to this day and still doing what they were doing 2,000 years ago, okay? That did not happen. They were punished and they were exiled. And like I said, a million of them were exterminated in the process. So um, what's the other one? Ephesians, everybody uses it. Ephesians, Philippians, anyway, um, for uh, forgiving uh, everyone just as, maybe it was what we did last week. I don't know. Anyway, forgiving everybody just as God in Christ forgave you. How did God in Christ forgive you? Just by a Yeah. Oh, okay. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Oh, there it is. Yeah. That's other. why I said maybe we did that last week and that's what got me on the thought of it. That's correct. So I, he forgave us by our coming to him and saying, I have sinned against you. Please forgive me. And he has done it graciously. Paul and Timothy says that he did this in ignorance. Right. This is what you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah, but, you know, ignorance doesn't mean that you have to forgive somebody, okay? People do sin against God in ignorance all the time, right? And they're not forgiven. Until they come to Christ, they are not forgiven. Christ was making a point that, you know, these people don't know what they're doing. They're crucifying the Son of Man. He's asking the Father to forgive them. And those that came to him, he did forgive. And it was his plan. That was his plan right along that he would be crucified for the sins of the world. Absolutely. But eventually their ignorance turned into knowledge. And that was in Acts chapter 2 when Peter stood up and he says, you guys crucified the Lord. What did he tell them to do? To repent. Repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. Okay. They were unforgiven at that moment. They were ignorant. Now they became aware. And he said, here is how to have that forgiven. Repent or to change your mind. And as I said a couple weeks ago, I think, I think it was a couple weeks ago, that when people say you must repent in order to be saved, what are they talking about? You know, because right. what, what are they talking about? You logically cannot repent if you don't know what you have done wrong. You cannot repent, okay? That, it's impossible, okay? You come to Christ, you say, I know that I've sinned, I ask that you forgive me of my sins, and then you learn the doctrine, and after you learn the doctrine which says this is an offense, this is an offense, this is an offense, then you can repent of doing those things. The Jews had crucified the Lord. They had to repent of that, okay? If you have rejected the gospel at some point in your life, you must repent of that. You have to change your mind, which repentance means to change your mind. You have to change your mind about your previous rejection of the gospel, and then you will be forgiven. When you say, I repent of my previous animosity towards the gospel, I understand that Christ died for my sins, I accept that premise, forgive me God, and he will do it. So in that case, you would need to repent. But if you never rejected the gospel, and you have no idea what your sins are, you just know you've sinned, what do you repent against? You simply ask to be forgiven of your sins, learn what your sins are, and you will be forgiven. First Thessalonians says, turn to God from idols. Yeah. That turning. Turning. He said that, that is the repentance. That's right. That's, that's exactly right. Because they're learning that that's the wrong thing yeah. to do. That is their, if you don't know what you're doing wrong, there's nothing you can do to repent of it. You have to first learn and the First thing you do when you hear the gospel is to understand that I acknowledge that I've lied. Okay, I know that's wrong. Everybody knows that's wrong. I've sinned. Now I would like God to forgive me of that sin. Now the repentance comes in that I will attempt to no longer lie. It may be so ingrained in you that you're going to lie for the next 10 years because it's just something you have to work out of. Oh, I lied again, right? Okay, but that is your process of repentance. It doesn't mean that you do it before 
because logically that is not a salvific issue. The salvific issue is that you are a sinner that needs a savior. All the other things come after the salvation, not before. If you had to repent of everything you did wrong, talking about the way that people use the word repentance, meaning stopping it, then you'd never be saved. You'd never come to Christ because your whole life is continuously one long failure in the presence of God. Okay? All right. So, once again, we are not required to forgive those who do not repent of their conduct toward us, just as God does not forgive those who do not come to him through Christ. The forgiveness is potentially unconditional, but it is not actual until it is requested. That's what everybody gets wrong with most of the issues that they face in the Bible every day. Potential and actual. Jesus Christ died for everyone, potentially. He did not die for everyone, actually. And if you can understand that, then you can avoid the error of, for example, Calvinism or universalism or all these other isms that people have because they think that Christ either died for everybody, so everybody must be saved, or Christ didn't die for everybody, and therefore God must regenerate you in order to believe, because etc., etc., etc. And those are all incorrect ideas about what God has done. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the cross. Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world. Everybody, every single person on this planet has the option to choose that. They're not automatically forgiven, but they have the option. If they choose that, they are forgiven. They are not regenerated in order to believe, and then they believe, and then they are forgiven. So you got both sides of the aisle are completely incorrect, and then you've got the middle road, which stands based on the words potential and actual. Get those two words right, you're going to have a much sounder theology in that and other issues that crop up in your walk with the Lord. Okay, um, to prove this, what I just read, the forgiveness is potentially unconditional, but it is not actual until it is requested. To prove this, we can go just a couple verses down in chapter 5, where Paul will say the following. Um, let me see about that. Hang on, i got to put that there. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Are they forgiven? Potentially, Potentially. but not actually. They are not actually forgiven, and that's why God's wrath has come upon them. If they repent of their wrongdoings, if they turn to God, whatever, uh, you know, if they know that they're doing wrong actively, they turn from that. If they just know that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, they come to him and ask for forgiveness, he will forgive them. They are forgiven. But until that action happens, they are not forgiven. So, perfect example of uh, what we're talking about in verse 5. One is found right down there, just a little further in the same chapter. Not everybody is forgiven, but actually, but everybody is forgiven potentially. A person who has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God and upon whom the wrath of God comes, is obviously not forgiven. Excuse me. And so in order to be imitators of God, we are to hold to that which is good, refrain from that which is evil, and to forgive openly and freely, but not unwisely. In doing so, we will be as dear children. 
A child who is dear is a child who emulates his parents in the ways they instruct. He further emulates his parents after seeing the way they behave. Okay, if you've got a child and you're raising him and you want him to be a conservative kid that makes right decisions, saves his money, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and he always goes out and he spends all of his money and then he goes and steals from the neighbor, that's not a child that is emulating who you are. You're bringing them up in one way and they're acting in another way and all that does is cause friction in the family. It causes heartache. It causes, we had one at the beginning of the uh, thing here, this girl that, is converting to Islam. She's moving, marrying a Muslim, and she's talking about moving to the Gaza Strip, I think is where they're talking about going. And the parents are beside themselves. You know, the, grand, the, the children will never have the knowledge of Christ, ever. They'll be denied that if this actually goes through. This person is not thinking clearly. She's, you know, just making bad decisions. And so this is not a child who is emulating their parents. They're not She's not walking in the way she was instructed, and it's causing him heartache. He further emulates his parents after seeing the way they behave. She's not doing that. A child that doesn't do that frustrates his parents. If we openly forgive someone who is violently opposed to the Christian message, who is a fornicator, an unclean person, a covetous man, or an idolater, without them first being willing to come to Christ and turn from those things, then we are not emulating our Father in heaven. We're not at all. And as he said, we're condoning their sin by saying, oh, I forgive you. We have, one, no authority to forgive them of such things. And two, we're working against God's principles and purposes by saying you're forgiven. Absolutely, absolutely. We are instead condoning their lifestyle and thus actually working against his intents and purposes for these people. However, this is what modern churchianity has come to. Doors are swung wide open to those who practice such things, and there is no hint of condemning the conduct in which they are engaged. We talked about it Sunday. We just read about a guy, the Welsh revival. The guy went to America. He came back to Wales. He went down to South Africa. He had the Welsh revival down there. He came back. He started a Bible college. He's in church, he's praying for people. He's got people actively doing things for Christ and probably instructing them the whole time to live holy as the Bible tells us to. And last week's CG report, what did we have on Wales? A, a trial, a testing period of five years to bless same-sex marriages, right. okay? And after that, they'll evaluate if it's still acceptable or not. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. The Bible is the standard. We don't test things. We don't try things in the world and say, we'll see if God will make, be happy about this or not. That is not how we conduct ourselves, okay? We conduct ourselves according to what Scripture says, and then from there, we let the chips fall where they may be. We are not to bless same-sex unions. We're not to invite people into the church that are openly opposed to the church if they are unwilling to submit. Now, don't get me wrong. If somebody wants to sit in the back pew and listen to the message, that's fine. But if they're going to come up and start speaking in the church about how great their lifestyle is, we need to kick them out of the church. That's all there is to it. We are not to condone those type of things in a church setting. Anybody can come in, but if they're going to start espousing their beliefs and they're, you know, speaking around what is taught in the church, that person needs to go. That is all there is to it. We are not to tolerate that type of thing in a congregation. Okay. It's what modern churchianity has come to. And I'll read it again. Doors are swung wide open to those who practice such things, and there is no hint of condemning the conduct in which they are engaged. In fact, there's a promote, promotion of it. 
they promote wickedness within the churches around the world today. Denomination after denomination has fallen. There's very little sound teaching in any of them anymore. Uh, there are, I know, within like the Methodist denomination, there might be a Methodist church that has been rebelling, and they've been holding to the gospel of Christ. And that may be the case in the Episcopal church. But my thought has always been, if you are giving to a church like a Methodist church or an Episcopal church, you give them your time, you give them your offerings, or you just simply listen to their messages, and you know that what is in their church being given by the other congregants is being funneled up to the hierarchy, you are, you are actually condoning wickedness by that your actions, by what they are doing, and by how you are allowing them to continue. By being a participant in what they're doing, you are actually promoting the wickedness of that denomination. I would suggest that people do not do that. That's just me. I'm not one to say, oh, we need to stay and try to make a change. I don't believe in that. You break away and make a change. You make a clean cut of these things because it's the only, to me, the only acceptable way of doing it. Anything that you are doing to promote that congregation, even if it's a sound one within a bad denomination, is still promoting the, the ends and the wickedness of the denomination itself. I just wouldn't be involved in that. Okay, uh, let's see here. Suppose blanket forgiveness of sin is handed out, and the example of God, which is given to us in Christ, is ignored. Life application. When we are asked to be imitators of God, it does not mean that we are to only assume what others might consider the positive aspects that he possesses, but all of his attributes. In other words, we don't just go to the Beatitudes and look that over and say, this is what we're going to conduct our church with for the next 25 years or however long the pastor is there. You've got to take in the whole counsel of God. God really is angry at sin. God really is going to judge the world in righteousness, and so on. The whole counsel of God needs to be taken in, and that means understanding all of the attributes of God. You can focus on his grace and mercy. That's a good thing to do. We try to do it every week at the end of the sermon. God is a merciful God. He will forgive you. God is gracious, and he will bless you, okay? But you have to focus on all of his other attributes. He is righteous. He is just. He is holy. He is truth. All of these things stem from him, and if we are not actively teaching those things and participating in them as a congregation, we are not doing what we should be doing. Everything about God needs to be explained to the people, all right? So, we are to have a moral sense of righteousness, justice, intolerance towards sin, and the like. If we fail in this regard, we are not upholding the words of Scripture, and we are not glorifying our Father who is in heaven, all right? Now, we think of heaven as a single place. God's in heaven and, you know, whatever. The whole universe is created by God. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere, okay? There are things that are wrong in the universe right now, and that's because man fell, and with it, the whole creation fell along with it. That's kind of, uh, where's that, Romans 1, Romans 2, okay? Everything is groaning to be put back into its right position, its right performance. And that will happen when sin is dealt with, okay? But when we think of God in heaven, all we need to do is close our eyes and think of everything that God has done in this universe, in the beauty of it, in the perfection of it. And, oops, let me get that. Okay, I'm just, uh, uh, all right, it doesn't matter. I just don't want it ringing a second time, so I'll read it later. Anyway. Um, uh, so, 
the point is, sorry about that, it happened right during the class and there's nothing I can do about it and it makes my brain go off, but uh, glorifying God who is in heaven is by thinking about everything that God has done. He has created the supernovas. He's created the constellations. He's created the smallest little microscope. You know, they just found a brand new type of flower, this little flower. I, I think it was up in the Northeast, never been identified before. It's unnamed, and it looks just like the COVID virus. It's <laughs> unbelievable. Okay, but here we have something out in the middle of the world. We've been studying this world now for thousands of years. And we have somebody find a new type of flower right in a place where people are all the time and they've never identified it, okay? And so we can look at this beautiful little thing. It just, it really is a beautiful flower. It's got all these little spikes on it, little things at the end of the spikes. And so it happens to resemble what we think of as the COVID, you know, particle. But just think about that, that all of this beauty is out there and that we can discover. And that is how we glorify God. It's not just by simply, you know, praying to him or praising him, but it's also appreciating the things that he has done. Glorifying your God in heaven is glorifying the God of heaven who created all of the things of the universe with his wisdom. So uh, it's just one of those thoughts that came to mind is that everything, everything about God, we should be learning. We shouldn't just be, you know, isolating ourselves to the Beatitudes. We shouldn't just be isolating ourselves to messages about grace. Or some churches, you know, I've been in some churches where it seems like every single week all they talk about is hell. Every single week they talk about hell. If you don't do this, you're going to go to hell. You're a sinner. And I remember thinking, how disappointing. Have you been in one of those, Tom? Okay, he said yes, too. I saw his head kind of shaking. And it's just, why would you focus on that? The glory of what God Especially has done in Christ is what? Save people in the room. Yeah, save people in the room. Why are you even bothering? You know, I mean, at the end of the thing, just like you give a salvation call, you can give a hell call. You know, if you're, you haven't called on Christ, you're going to go to hell. But why dwell on it through the whole? I don't understand. It's almost perverse what some people do. So there you almost go with like that. Trying to like live by fear. Yeah. Where have I seen that lately? Yeah, living by fear. It's an example of what's going on in the world right now. Talking about thanking God, we got rain coming down right now. I love the rain. Thank you, Lord. Okay, 5-2. First, before you do that, um, uh, it's been many years since you've done this, but all the attributes of God. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Conflict. Oh, yeah. But I'll they're put, all unified by... We'll do that right now before we go on. Just that. somebody, sure. somebody might not... Uh, just take a couple minutes. All right. This, here we got... What he's talking about is we've got the, uh, uh, you know, we got God in the middle. We'll put him right here. Uh, actually, we won't put God there. This is the attributes of God, and we're going to put them all here. We've got he is uh, holy, all right, and he is just, and he is, let's see, we'll say graceful. We'll just put the word grace, okay. And he is righteous. I'm not going to put all of his attributes. I'll just give you some of them that show us how there's this tension between us. I hope I spelled that right because I was talking while I was doing that. Righteous. And then he's also merciful. We know that. So he's mercy. Okay. And then God is, come on, love. Okay. Let's see. How many have I got so far? One, two, three, four, five, six. What truth? We'll pick one more. Truth. There we got seven. Seven is a good number to do this. Okay. So. If we have God on our mind and we just stick with the grace and say, God, God is gracious, God is gracious, God is gracious, God is gracious, and that's all we ever focus on, 
then we have an out-of-balance concept of what God is like. Because the Bible also says, you know, be holy as I am holy. What's that, Leviticus 11, 44 or something? Peter, should. Peter does too. He cites that anyway. So be holy as I am holy. Okay, God is holy, all right? Because he's holy, that means the word holy, kadosh, simply means set apart. He is completely other. He is completely set apart from us, okay? Because of that, if we focus only on his holiness, then we would never understand anything in our own lives, how do we become holy like he is? All right, he is set apart. We're not set apart because obviously he's set apart, implying he's apart from us. And so if we focus on that, we've got an unbalanced look. God is just, okay? If I, if I do something and which offends God, okay, let's see here. If I do something like uh, the Bible says, um, do not lie, and I lie, okay? The Bible is very clear that God is just, and we can know that God is just. I'll stop right there. We can, with justice, we can know that God is just because we cannot possess any attribute that God does not possess. Everybody understand that? Because if he doesn't possess it, then he wouldn't be God because everything stems from him. Now, what we possess as far as evil does not mean that God has evil in him. Evil is what? Absent. It's the absence of good, okay? Evil is the absence of good. If you think of, you got a car. I'm going to draw a very nice car here. I've got two wheels, all right? And then I've got the front, and there's my car. Okay, mom doesn't like my car. Okay, I got a car, and this is good. It's got hard metal, all right, nice and shiny. And then you drive through the snow a couple of years, and they have put salt on the ground, and you get these holes in it. The hole is not good. Okay, it's not anything. It's the absence of the good thing. The metal belongs there. There's no metal, and you can see it just corroding away. That's what that hole is. Our sin is an absence of goodness. Okay, our evil is an absence of goodness. It's not a thing in and of itself, it's contrary to God's holiness. Okay, so as long as you can understand that, we'll get back to the justice now. I've done something wrong, I've lied, and God cannot just simply say, oh, I'm going to forgive that. Because if he does, then he is not just. I'll use another example, because lying could be just against God, if, you know, if I lied to God. But we'll say I've committed adultery. That's a better example, because I've offended not only God, but I've offended another person, okay? If God was to say, okay, I'm just going to arbitrarily forgive you, okay, for what you've done, even though I've said it's wrong, and even though morally you know it's wrong, I'm going to forgive you arbitrarily, but the next guy comes along and he does, doesn't forgive him for the same thing, then God is not just. Okay, you go up to a judge and you have violated the law, you've uh, harmed somebody else, and that person is suing you, and the judge just says, well, I don't care, this is my friend and I'm not going to, I'm not going to punish him. That is an unjust judge. The other person did not get his justice. Okay, so God is just. All right. God is gracious. He wants to bestow grace on his people, okay? But at the same time, God is truthful. And he says that I am going to judge your sins. For example, in Leviticus 18.5, the man who does the, these things will live by them. And the fact is that none of them have done those things, and so they're all dead, okay? He is truthful that he is going to judge sin. If I'm going to judge sin, then I must demonstrate justice. 
okay? At the same time, God is also truthful that he says he is going to forgive our sins. He's going to have mercy on us. He's going to be gracious to us. So we've got a problem now because in his truth of telling us one thing, we will violate another one. There's this tension that's going on against them. God is righteous, okay? Righteousness is tied to justice in the same way. God is righteous and our offense against him must be judged, okay? Just and righteous are similar, but they're not exactly the same. Mercy and grace are dealing with the same issue from opposite sides. Okay, everybody see that? God is gracious. He wants to bestow grace on you. He is merciful. He's not going to give you what you do deserve. This is giving you what you don't deserve. This is not giving you what you do deserve. So the same thing is kind of true with justice and righteousness. God is love. He longs to have a relationship with his creatures, but he can't because he is just and he must judge us for our sins and he is righteous and he cannot overlook those things okay at the same time he's truthful and he said right i said he's going to forgive us our sins all of this tension is here and that cannot be resolved by anything that we have done all of this is a tension against us if i say okay well i i'm sorry about what i did and i'm going to pay this person back it still doesn't take care of the other attributes he's holy We've already violated his holiness, and there's nothing we can do to bring ourselves back into a right relationship with him and to overcome that gap between the two of us. All of these things, doesn't matter which one you pick, there's always a tension between all of them at all times. Like I said, truth goes both ways. I'm going to redeem my people. I am going to judge their sins. How do you resolve those things? There's only one way that this can be resolved. There's only one. In all of the universe, there's only one way. Buddha can't do it. Muhammad can't do it. There's nothing. God cannot just arbitrarily do one of these things without satisfying the others at the same time, because God is just. It's not that he gets just sometimes or that he will increase in justice or decrease in justice. God is just. God is love. God is truth. I am the way, the truth, and life. He, it defines him. These things define him. And because of that, there can be no relationship with these attributes or any of God's other attributes with us without the cross of Jesus Christ. In the cross of Jesus Christ, the truth of God is revealed that he is sending his son to take the punishment that we deserve. He is reconciling us to himself. God is holy. He can now bring us back to himself. We're no longer set apart. We will be holy along with him because we are in Christ. Christ is our covering. He is the one that makes us holy so that we can be presented to an infinitely holy God. He is just. He has judged your sin. He has done it because he sent his son which is allowed under the law of Moses, the standard of God for the people of Israel and the standard by which all people will be judged. Even if they're not judged by the law, they will be judged by the standard of the law, which is Christ's fulfillment of the law. He has, in his justice, executed out our sins. He has been graceful to us. He has lavished his grace upon us because, as it says in uh, um, John 1 and John 2, and probably through the whole book of John, I can't think of a chapter where grace isn't mentioned, you know, uh, what is it, John 1, 14, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So two of them right there, okay? The grace is poured out at the cross of Christ, okay? He is righteous. His righteousness is now established, and it is taken care of 
in the cross of Christ. We, he no longer violates his righteousness in any way, shape, or form if we come through Christ. He's merciful. His mercy can be bestowed upon us without violating his justice or his grace. Okay? It can be done. He is loving. His love can be poured out upon us without violating any of his other uh, attributes. All of these and any other attributes of God, if they are attributes of God, create a tension between us and him. And they can be reconciled, but they can only be reconciled in their totality through the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no other expression available. And what does that mean? That means that Jesus must be God because he is the one that takes all of those attributes and he packages them between God and man. He's fully man. He's fully God. He alone can make the bridge to our Heavenly Father. So that is the attributes of God and how they are reconciled to us. One cannot be done without another. And if you don't teach all of these, all of these at some point, because they all come up in Scripture, you're going to have an unbalanced view of God and you're going to have, you may not understand it, but you will have a a deficiency in your theology. You have a deficiency in how you perceive God. And that's why I say you get these lib churches, these lefty churches out there that only talk about God's grace. I'm sorry. That is an unbalanced view of God. You will never understand the holiness, the righteousness, the just nature of God, and you will never come to Christ because of that. Oh, see, everything is fine. I know about Jesus. I don't need to do anything. I don't need to have a heart for him because God is love. And that's all they focus on. And now what they have is unbalanced and it is a false presentation of Christ. Okay. If you have a false presentation of Christ, you have a false Christ and you have a false gospel. Everything must be considered. Okay. But once again, the gospel is not a hard thing to understand. It's a very simple message. And it's so simple that people trip over it. The idea is that a stumbling block is something you just don't see. God was willing to do all of these things in the giving of his son. You got something, Bert? No? Okay. Your hand was moving, and usually when it does, it gets you get excited. And like this. Okay. Um, okay, so uh, we're in 5-2. Two. Two. And live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay. little different. And walk in love, as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Okay, right there. We have the uh, uh, Old Testament symbolism being brought in. I got a friend that he's just annoyed me to death lately. He's he's gotten into hyper-dispensationalism some years ago, and he just, I, I counsel him on it. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get into it anymore, but it's uh it's i've just wasted my time i think because it, every time i give him the correct theology he gets back into something else and he's adamant that the seven churches are uh seven synagogues and that these he's not writing to the church age he's writing to jews in the end times and every time i refute it he goes to another teacher that has another view on him and he presents that and it just it goes on and on ad nauseum there's just no end to it okay so i got this a day ago and i said that's great it just Whatever you want to believe, go ahead. I'm, I'm not going to deal with this issue anymore with him. I've gone through it. I've given the evidence. It's very clear. But his justification was that, well, he's speaking to about Jezebel in this church. Okay? Jezebel is being used as an example, and therefore it's a Jewish synagogue, and it's not a church. Okay? And I was lying in bed, and I thought, you know, 
using that logic, then everything that Paul says, everything that Paul says is directed to a Jewish synagogue. Because, you know, what, uh, what is it? 1 Corinthians 10, the rock that followed them was Christ. Okay, the water is Christ. We've got right here, right here in this verse. And walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Do we have offerings and sacrifices in the New Covenant, animal offerings? No, absolutely not. So what do you, where is he getting that terminology from? He's getting it from the Old Testament. He's getting it from the book of Leviticus and Numbers, okay, especially. Also, they talk about those things in Deuteronomy, but not the specifics. The Levitical offerings are mostly defined in Leviticus, okay? Using his logic, which is maddening because it, it's just been a constant stream of this that goes on and on and on. Using his logic, then everything that Paul says belongs to a Jewish synagogue. We don't look at typology. We don't look at symbolism. And I brought this up to him so many times that it's just, you know, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Have we ever celebrated a Passover? No, because Christ is our Passover. We don't need to do that every year. Okay, he is the fulfillment of the typology. Okay, if you believe, if you believe that the letters to the seven churches are speaking to the Jews, then I have news for you. You are incorrect. I'm not going to go through this again in my life. I, it's just, it's incorrect thinking, okay? The church age is given these things. After the church age, there's going to be this coming, okay? And we are being told during the church age, because nobody knows when the church age is going to end. It could have ended 1,927 years ago. It could have ended 504 years ago. It could have ended last year. It didn't. Everything has an end. And when the church age ends, the tribulation begins. begins, okay? And so the warning is there for the church. If you don't want to participate in what is coming on the world, pay attention. But I just want you to know that if you have that theology in your head, you are incorrect, okay? Who attends the synagogue? Who attends? Yeah, the Jews. Exactly. I understand that. And But his logic is that the seven letters are to synagogues. They're to Jews of the end times. I, I know. I know. But once you have hyperdispensationalism in you, it's just like the Jehovah's Witnesses. It is an infection of bad doctrine. And for everything that you tell a Jehovah's Witness, the next thing to do is come out with something else that has nothing to do with anything. And they keep pulling. The, you know, you've talked to them. So this is what you get. And, it, you know, there's a point where you just have to say, I've done my job. I'm not doing this anymore. You know, and the thing is that I, I won't get into it anymore. No. I'm not mad at this guy. He's no. a nice guy. But there's a point where you've right. just beaten your head against the wall. And, and I don't have time for that. The reason why they do that is that it's like, okay, if, I'm just, if my life is to argue over what, whatever my beliefs are, right. then I am insecure and what I believe. That's exactly because right. I have, to, I have to argue it, and then I hear myself arguing the pros, so now I know I'm right. Yeah. But even though you're giving me a thousand things that are against <laughs> it, I, it's I, like you're they're very insecure about it. So it's just like, you know, I have friends, too, that I have arguments with. And, and, and years ago, I'm just like, I'm not talking anymore about it. There's, there's I know a you point believe something You else. believe that? I, believe I don't that. believe that, like and you're not going to convince me, so please just right. leave right. the issue alone. Right. If you want to cause a rift in our friendship, keep this yeah. up. <laughs> right. That's right. You keep this up, because that's all you're going to do. Okay? But there you go. Okay, so once again, 
I'll read this one more time. And walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us in offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. See, we're a synagogue here. We just we just had our sacrifices and we're down at the temple. It, it, it's It's crazy thinking. Okay, but once you get that, I feel bad for people that are in cults. I just do. It's like the King James only cult. They have this in their head. They cannot get away from it, despite all, you know, this guy, somebody sent me a video on the King James onlyism recently, and he said, he was talking about the source documents. He says, I don't need the source documents. It says, <laughs> God spoke, and it says here in the Bible that God spoke, and therefore the word is in his mouth. It's not on paper, it's in his mouth. And he says, I know that I have the pure, inspired, and what, what was the word he used? Um, uh, inerrant word of God in my hands, speaking of the King James Version. So I don't need to study anything. I don't need to check this out, okay? That is one of the most deceitful arguments that you can use against somebody when you say something like that, and that's what cults will do. They say, I have this. And so I don't need to check it. I know that this is correct, and etc. Okay, know what that is. Well, that's right. And they, will, you know, the, hear it. the thing, like, yeah. the thing is though, that when somebody is in a cult like that, whether it's King James Onlyism or Mormonism or whatever else, the reason why they are in those is because they weren't willing to check to begin with. They weren't willing to do the hard work and to check it out. Okay, and that's there is no doubt about that in my mind. It is an easy way. That's why people join Heaven's Gate. And they covered themselves up, wore those tennis shoes, and went off to Pluto or uh, whatever. The, the uh, yeah, Schumacher Levy or whatever, the comet. And they were, Hail Bob! That's what it was, a Hail Bob comet. Okay, they didn't have to think their own lives through. And they just said, okay, I'm going to do this. But once you're in that cult, this is the, the paradox of being in something like that. They will spend more time and more effort defending what is wrong than they would ever have if they had just started to check what is right, or at least to research. They don't know this is right or this is right, but to do the research in advance and to say, I know that this is wrong. They're not willing to do that, but they will spend more effort than they ever would have before to defend, like the Jehovah's Witnesses. Out of insecurity. Out of insecurity. That's right. It's a very, very sad cycle that people get themselves into, okay? It's just the way it is. But So uh, before 1611, everybody went to hell. That's right. And, you know, it, there are some people in British Israelianism, which is a cult, they believe that God spoke out the Torah, the commandments of Moses, the five books of Moses, in British English. Yes, that's what they say. That's exactly. So I want you to know there are people out there that have come up with these to defend. And if you show them a contradiction, forget the, the source text. Forget the source text which the King James is based on. If you show them a contradiction within the King James Version, they will just ignore it. And it's right there. And there are lots of them. There, there are lots of internal contradictions. And yet they will just, it, it's, what is it? Cognitive dissonance. They just shut it off. So it's not worth worrying about those things after a point. You do your job, do your best, and then go on. But here we go. We'll get the comments on that. I know you diverted a little bit, but it's a very maddening thing to me when people aren't willing to see reason things out. Okay, when you have something that's obviously wrong, I'm working with a guy on the Revelation commentary right now, and he's misunderstanding what I'm saying, and I said something wrong in an email earlier today to him, so that probably only exacerbated it, but we'll get it resolved tomorrow. I didn't have a chance to get it today, but um, uh, I appreciate when people will tell me something in a commentary that says, this does not sound right, 
and we can work through it. And I could probably use a lot better terminology than I did because, and I said, this is confusing right in the commentary because I, I won't get into it now. It'll take us an hour to go through that one thing, but it is a very confusing thing. And it's confusing even to try to explain. There are times where I'll sit down on Monday and I think, how am I going to explain this precept that I've got to explain in the sermon on Sunday? How am I going to do that? Because the wording has to be so precise. I'll give you one right now. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, a certificate of divorce. You want to talk about something that was very confusing. It's only four verses long. It was very confusing. How am I going to present this so people understand that? Okay. And I'll give you a hint right now, just so that you guys can see this. Let me read it to you. We've got a minute, and we'll finish this, and then we'll be done. So let me take you to Deuteronomy 4, and you'll hear this on Sunday if you listen to the sermon. If you don't, then shame on you. But if you do, you'll hear this on Sunday, and then it'll help you maybe, hopefully, process this a little better. It's Deuteronomy 24, and then it says, I'll just read you these verses. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she is departed from his house, and goes and becomes another man's wife, that's inserted, it's italicized, if the latter husband's husband detests her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her as wife, now that's a second proposition, either divorces her or the second one dies, then her former husband, who divorced her, must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. The translation is all wrong. I want you to know that. But the word husband is completely different. Which says in 24.1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and then down here it comes to husband and, uh, okay, uh, take her back as his wife after she has been defiled. It's different words that are being used. And you have to think, how do I explain this so that people are going to get it? And it wasn't easy. I mean, once you hear it, I think you'll get it really quickly. But I want to be precise. Because if not, there's going to be a deficiency in what they're thinking. And I will tell you right now, that is not, I don't make this the entire subject of the sermon. The sermon is about Jesus. How, you know, Doug did his uh, painting for the sermon. He sent it to me this morning. He gets these things. He knows what's going on in there. It, it's amazing. That guy's got a great mind. When he puts it onto there, if you look at the painting on Sunday, you'll see he, he has everything in there that needs to be in there to get an understanding of it. I don't know if he knows all the key points that I'm going to talk about, but really marvelous job he did on that. Anyway, um, uh, the main purpose of what I'm going to talk about is actually refuting somebody else's sermon that I was asked to do a year and a half ago that uh, used this here and a couple other verses completely out of context to say that God has divorced Israel and the people in the land of Israel today are not his people. And so I, I really have to defend that. This person asked me, can you uh, tell me why he's wrong, if he's wrong? Because if not, then you're wrong. And what you're teaching is incorrect. Somebody in the church and about a year ago, they asked me this. And so, okay, I'll do that. But this right here leads into the rest of the sermon plus the pictures of Christ. But I want you to know that this is a very complicated passage to try to be able to explain to somebody. But it's important. I mean, it's really important what is being conveyed right here because it has everything to do with Christ, with the new covenant, with Israel. 
it all is bound up in these, just like chapter, what was it, 21, I think, all of the wonderful pictures of Christ. It's these four verses right here do it as well. So uh, it's not easy to sometimes convey something, and when you do convey something, people will get a completely different idea of what you were trying to say because you didn't word it properly. So I, you got to be careful. Anyway, we'll sure. go on now. Um, five two, yeah, we got enough time to get this done. In order to be imitators of God, let's read this one more time. Um, uh, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given us for an offering and a sweet an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. In order to be imitators of God, as the previous verse demands, which is what Paul said in verse one, we are to walk in holiness. God is holy; we need to be holy, and to accomplish those things which were given to us to heed in the previous chapter. The previous chapter told us those things, and we need to heed them, okay? But in addition to that, we are to, as Paul says, walk in love. Love is the tie which binds all of those other aspects of our walk together. This is seen in Jesus' words, which are found in John chapter 13. So I'll take you to John chapter 13, and in verse 34, he says, John 12, John 13, 12 is a long chapter, okay, 13, 34. It says here, um, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that's a tie that binds it all together. But this love is defined in a special way by Paul now with the words, as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us. Once again, that act of love took care of the other things that he could not give us at the time. He couldn't be just with us without the cross. He couldn't be righteous towards us without the cross. All of these things had to happen at one single moment in time. And without it, there would be a void in what is going on. Everything is tied up in the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, as Christ has loved us and given himself for us, Jesus didn't just command us to love, but to do so with a type of love, which is self sacrificing. He made this known to us explicitly. Actually, I say to us, but he made it known to the apostles, his disciples, in John 15, verses 12 and 13, where he said, uh, and the younger uh, of them said to us, oh, I'm in Luke. I got to get into the book of John. Sorry about that. I was in Luke and I went forward, but obviously not far enough. Okay, John 15. Hang on here. Got to be in the right book, Charlie. Let's see. What is this? 15 and then 12 and 13. It says there, this is my commandment, that you love one another as even as I have loved you. Uh, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. He's saying, just as I've loved you, you ought to be willing to do it. He did it. Okay, so that's John 15, 12, and 13. We are to follow in his self-sacrificing love. This does not mean that we have all to literally die for our friends, but that our sacrifices are such that we would be willing to die for them. In Christ's death, Paul next brings in the Old Testament system of sacrifices and offerings to show us that what was in the Old, and this is for everything in the Old, including the book of Revelations chapter, Revelation chapters 1 through 3, everything that we are told about in the New Testament is typology, okay? It is typology. It has nothing to do with us going down to Jerusalem and sacrificing an animal. Everybody got that, okay? Gotcha. 
Everything was typology for us. It's a huge error that these people make. And the reason why is because they don't want to get into the Old Testament. And so they say, well, that's all Jewish stuff. Those are Jewish feasts. Those are Jewish symbolism. It's all symbolism that is representing Christ and what he would do now in the new covenant. All of it. Okay. So he gave himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God. The offering was his life lived under the law and in fulfillment of the law which was given to God on our behalf, which was given by God on our behalf. Okay, hang on a second. Let me, uh, oh, I'm sorry. The offering was given to God on our behalf. Okay, not the sacrifice. Okay, um, I'll read that again. The, the offering was his life lived under the law and in fulfillment of the law, which was given to God on our behalf. Okay, all of the different sacrifices, you had the burnt offering, you had the, um, uh, the sin offering, and you had the fellowship offering. Every single one of those offerings in every detail of one of those offerings pictured Christ in one way or another. Fellowship offering, which is the um, peace offering, the shalamim. That is bringing peace between God and man again. And so what did they do with the peace offering? God got a portion represented by the priest getting his portion and the people ate the rest right? There's fellowship. It's a picture of basically our communion, what we're doing now, remembering what Christ did. That was anticipating what Christ would do. Every single thing about those offerings anticipated Christ in one way or another, okay? He fulfilled the law perfectly and completely without ever failing in any precept. The sacrifice was then his death in satisfaction of the law. This is referred to in Hebrews chapter 10. Let me see if I can get you there really quickly. Hebrews chapter 10, and he says there in verses 5 through 7, 11, 3, 4, 6. Okay, 5. Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. I mean, here we go. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. He is the fulfillment of the typology. Those sacrifices didn't please God because they were only animal sacrifices looking forward to Christ. They were not anything that could actually take away the sins, and the people were using them almost as a talisman. Oh, I'm going to go take this down to Jerusalem, and I'm going to sacrifice it, and God's going to forgive me of everything I've done, even though I continue to do it, even while I'm making the sacrifice. As soon as I leave my tent, I'm going to go down to the lady down the road, her tent, and we're going to, you know, it, it was perverse, and that's what he rebuked the people for, okay? So, the sacrifices and offerings of the Old Testament were mandated under the law. And yet they are not what the Lord desired. Instead, they only pointed to the life of Christ. This is seen in the word, a body you have prepared for me. These words of Hebrews 10 were written by David in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. And they show us that David understood the temporary, transitory, and prophetic nature of the law's sacrificial system. It only anticipated Christ. It did not do anything in and of itself. In Christ, they find their fulfillment. In his death, then, there's a sweet-smelling aroma. This term goes back to the sacrificial system, which is detailed in the Old Testament, especially in Exodus and Leviticus. When a sacrifice was made as a burnt offering or a sin offering, 
the portion that was burnt on the altar before the Lord was deemed as a sweet-smelling aroma. You see that all the way through the book of Leviticus. These offerings were given in anticipation of the cross of Christ. It was his cross, which is the true and complete sweet-smelling aroma to God. And when we, when we look at that in the book of Leviticus, and we want to say, how do we know that this is fulfilled in Christ? We go to Paul. And he writes there, right in those words, a sweet-smelling aroma. Paul is a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was trained under Gamaliel. He was a leader of Israel. He knew what the law said. And so when Paul says, this is the fulfillment of that, we know that what we're reading in the Old Testament, all we need to do is go to Paul. Or to Peter, who at times says, you know, uh, as uh, Christ as a lamb uh, without spot or blemish. We know that when we're reading about an animal without spot or blemish in Leviticus, all we need to do is go to the New Testament and say, Peter understood he is the fulfillment of this. Peter was a Jew. He did the sacrifice every single year at the Passover. He knew what a Passover lamb was, and therefore we can take his word for it. He beheld the risen Lord. He knew that he was a uh, lamb without spot or blemish, okay? When the New Testament was written, going back to my thought about, you know, people saying this is only Old Testament typology, it doesn't apply to us. When the Old Testament, when the New Testament was written, the only scripture they had was the the Old Testament. Testament. So when they're citing that, they're citing it not for Jewish benefit, they're citing it for everybody's benefit. The Jews already had that, but we didn't. We need to know what Christ did in relation to the Jewish society, because they were the template for us to understand what Christ did. Okay, You can't just ignore the Old Testament and think, oh, I've got great theology in the New Testament. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. The entire point of what we do every single Sunday is to understand what God did in Christ so that when we get to the New Testament, we are fully developed in our theology. Okay, uh, these offerings were given in anticipation of the cross of Christ. It's his cross that is the true and complete sweet-smelling aroma to God. Through him, full and complete restoration to God is made for the people of the world. Through his cross, we are made acceptable to God once again. Thank God for Jesus Christ. This perfect offering is what we are to emulate. As Christ walked, so are we to walk. And his perfect sacrifice based on his perfect life is what we are also to emulate. In our walk, we are to be willing to offer ourselves to God in the service of others in love. That's exactly what Paul is dealing with right there. He's dealing with us understanding Old Testament system so that we can then say, I see how that pertains to Christ, and now I can apply that to myself. Not to go back and, you know, observe the feasts of the Lord. I'm going to observe Passover because that's what the Old Testament says to do. And once again, here's a perfect example. I get this email quite often from people that feel that they have to observe the the, um, uh, feasts of the Lord. They say, I'll read you from verse 6, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly are unleavened. Okay? For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What feast is he talking about there? Well, he's talking about all the old feasts. Only in that, what I just read you. What feast was he talking about? I'll read it again. Your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
Therefore, purge out the leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's what everybody says. Everybody says he's talking about the Passover. He's not talking about the Passover. Christ is our Passover. What came immediately after the Passover? Seven days called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's talking about our life in Christ. There were three pilgrim feasts. Those pilgrim feasts picture our life in Christ. The Passover pictures Christ's fulfillment of that feast. And then we have our obligation in relation to that. He's speaking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He said it like 10 times in there. But everybody says it's Passover because he says, let us keep the feast right after Passover. He's not speaking about the Passover. Christ is the Passover. We keep the feast, not keeping leaven out of our house, the bread, but keeping sin out of our lives in the bread of life, Christ. Everybody see that? That is what's going on. And people misapply those verses and they come up with a faulty hermeneutic. They now have a problem in their theology and they say we have to observe the Passover. And so they're out there to this day observing the Passover because they think that's what Paul is talking about. Everything has to be taken in context. Okay, so life application and we are done. It is a very high calling to which we have been called. Are we willing to put aside our petty differences and hold our fellow Christians in high esteem as we have been asked? Are we willing to expend ourselves serving others even as Christ served us? Let us remember these words and think on them as we interact with other believers. All right, let me circle this so we know where we are next week. And we'll put that there so we know that's there. And then we'll have a prayer and we'll be out of here. Glorious Heavenly Father, thank you for this precious word. Thank you for it. Help us to just cherish it and to revel in it and to learn from it every single day of our lives. Let us never fail to apply this word to our lives. Morning, read it. Evening, read it. During the day, think on it. Listen to it. Cherish it. Lord, this is what you have given us to understand who you are and to understand what you have done in Christ. Help us not not to neglect this wonderful treasure, your superior and beautiful word, the Holy Bible. Help us to apply it to our lives as well, not just to know it, but to also be doers of what it tells us to do, to tell people about Christ, to walk in holiness, to be at peace with one another. Help us to do these things so that we will glorify you, O God. May it be so, and may it be to your glory alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here we go. We're going to go to uh, break.